0: The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. All of you on the two, one. and we're doing this on the end. That's One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
1: everyone to Talking Space 311 and tonight we have with us an exceptional guest. Frank Mooring Jr. is the senior editor of Space for Aviation Week and Space Technology. A native of Huntsville, Alabama where his father worked in the U.S. space program from 1954 until his retirement. Frank has covered spaceflight regularly since 1974 and exclusively since 1991. He graduated from Dartmouth College, and spent his early career working for newspapers in Alabama. He has been based in Washington, D.C. since 1979. In addition to Aviation Week, his work has appeared in Aviation Week's Aerospace Daily newsletter, of which he was managing editor, as well as the New York Times and other daily newspapers in the U.S. and abroad. And I'm Gina Herlihy, and with us tonight, as usual, we have Mark Ratterman and Gene McCulka.
2: Greetings, and I'm looking forward to talking with Mr. Moring tonight.
0: Well, please call me Frank.
2: (laughs) Appreciate that.
1: Hi, Frank. Welcome so much. Thanks for joining us tonight on Talking Space. We have a lot we'd like to discuss with you. Certainly, uh, you're Washington D.C. based and sort of right in the heart of everything that's happening right now between NASA and on the Hill. And we're very much um, looking forward to getting your insight and sharing that with our listeners this evening. I just wanted to Start a little bit with um, perhaps some of your insight or reflections of NASA and the space shuttle as we're winding down the space shuttle program. Just a few weeks away from Endeavour's final flight, STS-134, and um, <clears throat> you know, still kicking around out there is the possibility of Atlantis flying again on 135, and. What do you think? I mean, do you think we'll have a 135? Um, You know, there's arguments right now on the Hill, too, about a heavy lift vehicle, but um, NASA's got to kind of complete the space shuttle program before we can move forward. So what do you hear about a 135?
0: Well, I think probably 135 is going to take place, but, you know, the government is only funded through April the uh, the 8th, and as of right now... um, Nothing is a sure thing. it's uh, i've I've never really seen a situation like this where uh, the government is being funded a few weeks at a time while some very basic issues that transcend transcend space policy are being resolved, and that's basically how much debt the government is going to be in and for um, specifics are is NASA going to follow the uh, the twenty ten spending level, which was a little bit less than nineteen billion dollars. Or are they going to go back to 2008, which was somewhat less than that? Right now, all of their assumptions that the, is that they're going to keep it 2010, which means that they would be able to fly the uh, 135 mission and and do some other things that we can talk about later. But there is a, at least a chance that they'll that they'll cut back. And if that happens, it's anybody's guess what's going to get axed.
1: If they cut back, what do you think? Um, what else could it hurt in terms of NASA's budget? In terms of planetary science? other aeronautical ventures that NASA is looking at in terms of research and development, either in partnership with Boeing or just on their own, experimentally? Or would it just um, impact, do you think, space operations?
0: I'm glad you mentioned aeronautics, which, as you know, is the other A in NASA. And that has been a stepchild for a long time. It's it's funded at about a half a billion dollars. And they're doing some very basic research on things like um, improving... The efficiency of the air traffic control system so that um, aircraft don't use as much fuel, for example, that's that sort of thing. I don't see that changing anytime soon because um, there are so many demands on the space side of the house. Space operations are, are, are going to, to shift to the International Space Station after 135, which will be in June, if it goes as planned. Of course. Our astronauts, Canadian astronauts, Japanese astronauts, and European astronauts will join their Russian colleagues in traveling to the space station on on Soyuz vehicles after that. And that's really the only way to get to the space station after the shuttle retires. I personally think that the first thing that's going to go, if there's there's a cutback to fiscal 2008 levels, is going to be this, uh, what I call, an open-ended enabling technology Development program that NASA has in its budget request, but is has it's it's open-ended. It's let's let's develop technology so that we can um, do things in space that we can't do now. Things like um, in-space propulsion that uh, uses um, ion propulsion instead of chemical propulsion. It's very low thrust, but you know over time accelerates to very high speed. There's some engines out there they say could get a spaceship to, to Mars in 39 days, actually. There's one done in Houston called the Basimir engine. So those are the kind of things that are going to go back on the back burner uh, when the, if, it's, if the budget cutting becomes more serious than it already is.
1: That's a shame. Is that the ion propulsion drive engine that um, astronaut uh, Chang Diaz has been working on?
0: That's exactly yeah, and there are plans to put that on the space station and use the space station as a, a test bed. Uh, Franklin Chang Diaz is working on that right now with NASA, and it might actually be in a position to reboost the space station at some point. That that one is actually pretty far along. There are some other ones that are even more um, out there that would be the first to go. I think I think Chang Diaz is in pretty good shape if he can keep his own funding because a lot of that is private money mm-hmm. uh, to get something up on the space station. And that's something else we can talk about if, if you like to is, you know, how they're going to use the space station. And and that's a classic example of what NASA wants to do with it is to use it as a sort of a, uh, a test bed or a place to put test beds for some of these advanced technologies that will be needed for um, for exploration beyond low Earth orbit beyond the space station
1: have you ever heard any rumors that perhaps the station would stay operational beyond 2020 um, I, for, for such tasks as that
0: I the, the space station has been certified by the engineers to, to uh, for service life through 2028 and I just if it's if it's up there if it's working well if it hasn't been damaged by some accident like a, a piece of space junk or something like that, I find it very hard to believe that, that that the international partners, NASA, the European Space Agency, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, the Russian Federal Space Agency, and the uh, Canadian Space Agency would willingly turn that off. Of course, you know, there, there are a lot of you – know, it's, it's expensive. It's, it was expensive to build. It probably cost about $100 billion to build, and it cost – several billion dollars a year to operate. I don't really know exactly how much it does cost. But I think that would be one of the very last things to go.
1: Well, new engines are certainly hot topics these days on Capitol Hill. I think Gene has a question for you about um, the heavy lift vehicle that's being batted around on Capitol Hill.
3: Good evening, Frank. And thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to join us today. Again, the, the the HLV, the purpose of that has really, I don't know, it, it hasn't. First off, in my eyes, has never really been articulated all that much. Much I'm hearing, it's just basically to replace the the upmass ability of that we're going to lose with shuttle. In your in your eyes, first, what do you see the HLV doing? that Congress is proposing? Is it just sort of saying, well, we're going to build this thing for the possibility of utilizing it later, or is it just something to keep in our hip pocket, or how do you see it?
0: Right now it's being built, and when I say right now, this is two days ago. I went to a briefing by the NASA administrator, Charlie Bolden, about, among other things, that subject. And the idea of a heavy lift vehicle as Authorized by Congress and, and enacted uh, by President Obama's signature is to have a vehicle comparable to the Saturn V that could take human beings beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, where they go is, I, I think is personal, I personally think is an open question. The stated target is um, an asteroid or near Earth or object by about 2025, I think. But there's really, there really is no no objective. We're 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 in sort of the same place we were in the early 1970s in the United States, where after the um, the moon landings, there was a real debate about what happened next, and and the shuttle came out of that. But there were there were there was a period of time in there when when the, the U.S. space program was really kind of an open question. There were other demands on on the federal budget, and in those days it was the Vietnam War among other things. So the heavy lifter, the short answer is to take humans beyond low-Earth orbit. And, there, of course, there's a lot of stuff out there, so they could be going to the moon. That's where we were going under the old program, which was canceled by the current administration. There are asteroids. There are the moons of Mars, which are an interesting um, target, and also Mars itself.
3: It's funny that you mentioned the old program constellation. Um, my my next, it's sort of a, a good lead-in for the next question I had. You've been in the business now since oh, good lord, since about 1989, correct?
0: That's about right. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, you, I'm, I'm just I'm just remembering where we were under uh, uh, the first president Bush, Bush 41. Um, with the uh, Space Exploration Initiative, and then I kind of I'm looking at Constellation, and they kind of look, I, I'm kind of, they they kind of like mesh up in a mirror. Is is that what, what is that the way you, you see both programs? You know, did we go ahead and make the same mistake twice?
0: Well, we, we made, I think we made different mistakes, or different versions of the same mistake. The Space Exploration Initiative had basically the same objectives, um, and, you know, the objectives I've always thought are pretty much set by planetary geography. I mean, Mars is there, and it's a place where we could, you know, where human beings could land and walk around, and there's certainly interesting science to be done there, and, and you know, possibly even life. Probably microbes, but still life. The Space Exploration Initiative was a grand idea with no money. The, the Bush 2 proposal called Constellation Again was you know was targeted on Mars this time we were going to go to the moon and practice because it's so close you can come home from the moon in about two and a half days. so if there was a problem, people could could return fairly quickly and there was some engineering behind it there were there were shuttle derived rockets there was something called the Ares one, which was based on uh, a shuttle booster and A new upper stage with an with an engine that actually goes back to the Saturn upper stages, and then a heavy lift vehicle comparable to the one that is still on the table, uh, that would evolve out of that Ares One that was going to be called the Ares Five. The problem with that again was that there wasn't enough money. There was some money. They actually did a test flight of the Ares One, of an Ares One. Not very much Ares One. It was mostly dummy, but there was it did take off from from a modified pad pad 39b down at the cape and then the uh, the incoming administration had a, a an outside commission headed by Norman Augustine from from the former Lockheed Martin CEO who th- this panel of which of you know distinguished experts concluded that there just wasn't enough money that the program wasn't sustainable at that point the the policy became handing off access to the space station to commercial crew and cargo transport and that's actually believe it or not is coming along um, pretty well I think there are a lot of doubters including me who are becoming convinced that this might might work it pretty much has to at this point because there's uh, there really is no alternative except the Soyuz and perhaps the Chinese but politically that's uh, incorrect at this point as well I have
3: sort of two follow-ups with that. Um, one was uh, again the NASA budget right now, as it stands. Well, right now we don't have one, but uh, the proposed one is sort of flat. And I believe uh, President Obama had uh, suggested that we give NASA a six billion dollar boost. Now, since it looks like you know we've got a, we've got the Republicans in that, are, that seem to be you know in a very uh, cost-cutting mode. Do you actually see the budget being flat again? And if so, are we going to re- be repeating the same mistakes that we made with Constellation with the proposed heavy lift vehicle?
0: I think that's a very real danger. I, I, right now, the the thing that as I just said that I think is most likely to happen is that there will be some kind of commercial way to get cargo to the space station. I, last week, I went over to Wallops Flight Facility in, on the eastern shore of Virginia, and um, toward the the launch facilities that are being developed for one of the two launch vehicles to, that's going to deliver cargo to the space station. And that's the Orbital Sciences Taurus 2. And they actually have a launch pad that's pretty much complete. I mean, they have to outfit it yet, but the, the concrete is up, the towers are up, the water tower is up. And there's a rocket there. They're, they're building their rockets in, in Ukraine. And the first flight hardware, the first... Taurus-2 that will fly is actually on a ship at sea right now heading for that launch site and will probably be launched later this year. Uh, As you know, um, SpaceX, which is based out in California, has been using the CAPE, and they've actually put a a capsule, um, pretty much a dummy capsule, but still a a version of their Dragon capsule in orbit and retrieved it. So that is just unprecedented for a private company. So I think that's going to happen the next step after that is putting people in those things. That I think is more more far fetched. Right now, it seems like Congress wants this heavy lifter to be some kind of uh, backup to the commercial vehicles, and that's like killing a fly with a sledgehammer because you don't need uh, heavy. You know, you don't need a Saturn V to get to low Earth orbit. And uh, Bolden, on uh, a couple of days ago, was talking about. Um, an evolvable vehicle which would probably have a lot of a lot of shuttle hardware in it because one of the things that they're trying to do is is just not lay everybody off who knows how to fly human spacecraft the people who've been working on the shuttle so well the past 30 years yeah, indeed that's that's going to be a
3: problem because I, i've talked to some folks from apollo and they they're they're looking at this and going here we go again where there was just such a tremendous brain drain in the 70s and now they're looking at this, you know, currently with, with the shuttle program winding down and the tremendous brain drain there. And they're saying that, we're again, we're, we're not learning the mistakes. You know, we're not basically repeating the same mistakes that we did before. And uh, it's going to be very difficult to hang on to those people at this point if they don't have anything to do.
0: Absolutely. I was at a satellite conference here a couple of weeks ago, a commercial satellite conference. And uh, there's, there's always a concern in the aerospace industry about where the next generation of, of engineers is going to come from. And someone at one of these panel sessions raised the question, well, what about the ones who've already been laid off and you know, the people in mid-career? And you know, if you can't keep them employed, it's going to be pretty hard to keep the, uh, what they call the fresh outs, the, the, the young men and women fresh out of engineering school interested in pursuing a career in, in uh, the space industry.
3: Um, I was looking over an article that you had written back in January, indicating that SpaceX needed at least 17 flights uh, un- unpiloted in order to go ahead and commit to a to a human uh, mission. Why-, why is that?
0: I'm-, I'm just curious. Well, for one thing, they don't really have a. Um, it's a. It's one thing to, to launch cargo, and it's not, you know it's a, quite a different thing to launch. Um, human being just for safety, and Bolden and everybody else in the government um, insists that safety is, is the first priority. They, while astronauts are, are, are certainly willing to take risk, they don't want to expose them to unnecessary risk. Uh, in the case of SpaceX, and that number came from SpaceX, uh, that was their calculation of the number of flights that they would have before they attempted to launch a human being. One of the big things that they need to do is build an, um, a launch abort system. And they've really made – they actually have a bid on the table. It, it may be announced, you know, this coming week even, very soon, for something called crew, Commercial Crew Development 2, CCDEV2, and two the acronymies that we use around here, which is probably – and, again, this is all contingent on, on, on getting something besides these short-term – Funding measures called continuing resolutions, but if there is a, if a, um, a continuing resolution that lasts till the end of the fiscal year, which is on September 30th, NASA is probably going to spend about a quarter of a billion dollars in seed money with commercial companies like SpaceX to develop the kinds of things that they would need to take humans on their on their cargo vehicles or other vehicles that aren't in the cargo game right now. So, Orbital Sciences. Has a proposal for a a vehicle that would probably not be launched on a Taurus 2, but on something like an Atlas or a Delta. SpaceX is going full steam ahead to to launch humans on their Dragon capsule, but first they have to develop a system to get the Dragon capsule off of their rocket, which is called the Falcon 9. If there's a, a failure on on asset. Uh, it's called the launch aboard system, and and they really you know they're they're counting on this CCDev 2 money. To build that so there's there's a lot of work to be done even for spacex which is clearly the front runner in the commercial cargo and crew game right now because they've flown by, by
3: the way i'm one of those folks too that uh, uh, and I've, I've been i've said so on, on this program too where i'm i'm saying that i'm not too sure this is all going to work but if this is what the country wants to do then let's let's pray it does Mark, I'm going to throw it over to you. I've kind of hugged some time enough.
2: <laughs> it's fine. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really interested in what I'm hearing. Hey, Frank, I've got a question about the uh, rockets such as the Atlas, the Delta, the Ariane, the Russian rockets. Uh, not knowing that much about them, how suitable are they for future uh, launches for science and exploration? Are they, are they big enough, bad enough, good enough, or does there need to be something else coming along?
0: Those rockets are all very good for for robotic missions. Um, the Atlas has has launched a lot of a lot of important science missions. The Atlas V, which is a you know it's a big it's a big rocket. They're, I think of all those rockets as being in roughly the same class. I mean the, the the details are you know one may have a little bit more throw weight than another one. The, the Atlas V sent uh, New Horizons on its way to Pluto. It was the fastest launch ever in terms of its escape velocity from Earth um, there's another one going up uh, in August called Juno also on an Atlas 5 which which um, uh, is headed for Jupiter it won't go quite as fast because it's a bigger spacecraft but it's it's the same rocket um, the Russians have uh, the proton which is their big rocket and uh, while it it mostly does Russian government missions and commercial satellites for a U.S. company called International Launch Services. That actually it's a U.S.-based company, but it belongs to uh, a Russian company called Krunichev. It could certainly launch scientific payloads. The uh, Ariane 5, which is launched from French Guiana, is you know launches a lot of a lot of scientific uh, uh, payloads. So. Those are all good rockets for, for launching uh, robots, and some of them could probably be a- adapted for humans as well.
2: well. Frank, I'm curious what you think about the Taurus XL. Recently they launched the Glory satellite that failed to reach orbit, and it doesn't have too good a history, it seems. I'm curious what you think about its future. Does it have some minor bugs that they'll get worked out, or is it uh, seriously threatened as a, as a launch rocket?
0: I think that was a major foul-up, um, because they, as you probably know, they that was the first time they'd launched it since they uh, had a similar failure with the orbiting car- carbon observatory, which the, the failure was that the the um, the fairing or the shroud that protects the spacecraft during its passage through the atmosphere failed to separate and. So the satellite, you know, couldn't reach orbit with the big heavy shroud around it. It fell in the ocean off uh, the coast of Antarctica. And then the same thing happened to glory. And the, the thing that's got me a little bit baffled is that they redid the, the separation mechanism um, in, in the meantime. And so they had two failures that produced, the, two different failures that produced the same result, which was that the, uh, they didn't get the fairing off. I think that looks really bad for for um, for that variant of the Taurus. It's it's unrelated to the one that they're launching to orbit with uh, cargo for the space station. That's a completely different rocket. It's um, liquid fueled and 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 built in the Ukraine. Uh, it has a couple of Russian engines on it. It's, it's it's a new rocket or a new version of old hardware that that works out to be a new rocket. Uh, The Taurus XL was uh, that was a serious setback for the U.S. space program in terms of scientific payloads.
2: While we're uh, talking about Murphy's Law, can you tell us about the Eastern Range? Recently on the STS-133 launch of Discovery, there was a bit of a problem with the range that uh, was red and, and nearly scrubbed Discovery's launch. It did end up uh, launching that day, but uh, it seems kind of a mystery as to actually what the trouble was. Does the Eastern Range have major problems, or was it? Do you think it was just a, a single issue that we'll probably never see again?
0: I'm not really competent to say. I, I don't know anything about the Eastern Range, and I actually just visited my first range last week over in Wallops. There's a there's a, a civilian range there. The Eastern Range is run by the Air Force. And they all work together, but I got a, at least a feeling for how complicated it is. And and, and uh, uh, I, I really have, I, I just don't know about the, uh, the eastern range situation at all.
2: Well, to hear you say that a, a range system is something that's complicated, uh, you know, really expands to something even greater. When you talk about the eastern range, it covers a very large geographic area. I tended to think of it as just some radar for tracking and communications, and apparently there's quite a bit more to it than that.
0: You realize, you know, we think, well, they're tracking airplanes, you know, make sure the little Cessna doesn't drift into the keep-out zone or that there isn't a boat out there. They also watch for submarines, at least at Wallops Island, and I expect they do in uh, uh, in Florida as well, uh, which I just, I, it makes perfect sense. I just never realized that they'd do that as well.
2: Got another question. I'm curious if you've heard anything about the uh, ATV that's currently docked at the ISS, possibly having its mission extended to as much as six months and uh, allowing the ATV to reboost the ISS orbit following the uh, June flight of STS-135 Atlantis.
0: Uh, I haven't heard anything specific except it makes perfect sense. That's. Uh, I know that They've they've re, they use those those vehicles go up there with with a load of fuel and um, I know the Russian Progress vehicles which is a smaller but comparable mission um, regularly reboosted the the space station the space shuttles reboost the space station if they have fuel left over they want to you know there is a, an engine on the space station and a fuel tank but they want to you know they if. If there's fuel up there that's going to go back to Earth, they would rather use it to reboost the station than take it back to Earth. And uh, so it makes perfect sense to use ATV and and the HTV as well, the Japanese cargo vehicle.
2: Frank, there was an article you wrote recently that I read titled An End to Space Trash. And uh, in reading it, it was really interesting. The Canadian company, McDonald Detweiler & Associates, has a plan to... Uh, Use a, a satellite to help with the problem of space junk. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about that too?
0: That came up at this at this satellite conference, um, which I mentioned a little while back. Um, the, um, the The real punchline on that story was that they have a MDA, McDonald, Detwiler Associates, which is the same Canadian company that built the robotic arms on the uh, shuttle and the space station, and also the big, they call it the hand for the space station arm. It's actually a, a two-arm robot with a lot of fine movement at the ends of it. Uh, it's just called Dexter. It's a special-purpose dexterous manipulator. Um, these are you know, really state-of-the-art space robots. Um, the company that builds them is... is is working with Intelsat, which is one of the biggest. Um, I guess it is. I guess it is the biggest satellite operator in the world, uh, to service satellites primarily by refueling them, and the deal is potentially worth 280 million dollars, which is not chump change for a commercial deal. So Intelsat has put up some money up front. Uh, MDA has put up some money up front, and then if they meet certain milestones, eventually they will pay, Intelsat will pay um, MDA to go up to communication satellites in geostationary orbit, which is way on up there, and refuel them. That's the basic purpose, because they, um, they have to occasionally throw out functioning satellites just because they're out of fuel. So it becomes, there apparently is now a business case for refueling these things and keeping them going. And the deal with Intelsat would involve five satellites plus a lot of testing and checkout. And the thing that was really interesting to me is that they already have competition. There's another company that is working on a a little bit different approach. The, The MDA approach is actually to go up and latch onto the satellite, put a hose pipe in it, and fill it up just like you would on the ground. With with fuel, which they need to to keep station over the equator, they tend to drift a little bit, and so they have to have fuel to to do station keeping. This other company um, wants to, and and they don't have a spacecraft. They have what I call a paper spacecraft, but they they have a concept for for doing uh, a similar rendezvous and docking, and then just staying docked to the target spacecraft, and. Uh, let the fuel in the the what they call a space tug or what I call a space tug um, become the fuel for the for the the depleted satellite. So the, the 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 controller, the owner of the depleted satellite, would turn off its attitude control system, and it would be taken over by this space tug. So this is an idea that's been around for a long time, and it's it's just it's very interesting that it's. Um, uh, you know, somebody's put some money up to to see if it would really if it will really work and pay off. And, and uh, of course, there are a lot of applications. There are, there are certainly robotic um, uh, robotic applications that can be used in human space exploration. You could you could re- refuel um, uh, cargo ships on their way to a planetary destination robotically, and. Eventually, that's probably what will happen. There was a lot of talk in the Augustine Commission about fuel depots in space. Um, there is a, uh, which would be largely robotic. There is a plan to put a uh, uh, a simulated satellite on the space station on this STS-135 mission, and use Dexter to do some of the same work that its little brother on this this free-flying refueling spacecraft would do. So, space robotics, is, which has always been a, a Canadian niche in the space industry, seems to have taken a little a little jump um, this year, which is very interesting. And of course, the reference to space trash is that the, you know, the dead satellite would not be the um, you know an obstacle to navigation would not be space trash.
2: Frank, there was an article you wrote recently that I read titled An End to Space Trash, and uh, in reading it, it was really interesting. The Canadian company, McDonald Detweiler, and Associates, has a plan to uh, use a a satellite to help with the problem of space junk. Can you tell us a little little bit about that, too?
0: (laughs) There's a satellite up there right now, Galaxy 15, um, which... uh, had a, a control failure, and they called it zombie sat because it was just drifting around the, uh, the geostationary belt, getting in the way of other satellites. And both of these companies would, you know, believe that they would be able to use their spacecraft to, uh, you know, to essentially rescue an, an out-of-control satellite or a satellite stranded in a low orbit. That happens sometimes when there's a launch issue. It doesn't quite get up to the right orbit. They could go get it and put it there. So it's a you know it's a, it's an interesting it, it's a new it, it may well be a new space business and that those don't come along very often so that's kind of an interesting story.
3: Uh, Frank, you mentioned Juno, um, uh-huh. the uh, the probe that is uh, scheduled to go out to uh, to Jupiter. One of the objectives uh, is to see if Jupiter really actually has a a rocky core or not. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on on, on, uh, on Juno for me?
0: Yeah, we just did a cover story on that in, in Aviation Week in Space Technology, and um, it's a fascinating mission. It's, it's uh, for one thing, it's solar-powered. Um, Jupiter is so far from the sun that previous uh, probes that have gone out there have been controlled by what they call a radioisotope thermome- um, thermoelectric generator, RTG, which generates electricity from the heat of decaying uh, plutonium. This one is actually going to run on sunlight. It has huge solar arrays. It looks like a big windmill. They're going to it's, – it's basically a sounding mission. They, they go very close to the, to the top of the clouds and um, like within, I think, 3,000 miles or something, which at those distances is pretty close. And they're going to – they have a lot of sounding instruments on the spacecraft that are going to take sounding measurements into the atmosphere and a lot of that has to do with finding out what it's made out of down below the cloud tops what we can that we can see from earth and answer some really basic questions about not just jupiter but about the the solar system and how it formed because jupiter is is they believe it's the oldest planet it's certainly the largest planet and it it's a kind of a type of planet a gas giant that they find with increasing regularity, orbiting other stars, so you know there's a lot of a lot of hope for this mission. One of the it's interesting. One of the things the determining the core actually has to do with with the Doppler effects of the signal back to Earth. They can calculate from the Doppler effects that they get what's under those clouds, how much how much um, mass is down there, and I'm probably getting that wrong, but it's it's it is a way they they have some really sophisticated ways to 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 take what to me would seem like a very tiny little clue and 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 extrapolate into things like is there a solid core in the middle of Jupiter and, and or, or or what kind of core Jupiter has might be a better way to say that I'm getting sort of at the edge of my my uh, knowledge so I better I better not speculate too much but it's a it's a fascinating mission. Because of the implications for Jupiter science, for solar system science, and and then for these extrasolar planets that they're finding with with other missions like the Kepler mission. The, one other thing I, that fascinated me about the the, the Juno probe, it, the um, space around Jupiter is extremely hot. There are, there are these big radiation belts that are just play havoc with with electronics, and the Juno spacecraft gets around that in a couple of ways. One is that they fly under the radiation belts, which they can navigate uh, precisely enough to actually fly. They have an elliptical orbit that will take them through the belts and then under it, and that's where they do their science. And even so, they're they're having to go through the belts, so they've put all the really sensitive electronics in a titanium vault, which weighs about 150 kilograms, and... Um, the project manager explained it to me that this was actually cheaper than trying to harden the electronics individually. They just send this big, heavy, they call it the vault, up there to protect the, uh, the electronics as long as possible. And they think they'll last about a year, so it gives you an idea of how hot it is at Jupiter. Now, the
3: way it's going to get there, obviously we're going to be using a gravity assist. Are we going to be getting any more, any additional flybys from uh, from Juno on its way, or, or is it just going to be a, a straight shot out to, to Jupiter and that, and that's about it?
0: It's a, They're going to use the Earth as a gravity assist. They'll do okay. like one swing by Earth and then go straight on out to Jupiter, and that's a function of where the, where the planets are. They have about a, oh, I think it's a three-week window in August, and I can't remember the exact dates right now, something like the 5th to the 26th or something like that. And they'll start at the beginning of the, of the, the window and, and, you know, get it on its way, it's, as I think I mentioned, it's going on an atlas fine as well, and those tend to take off pretty pretty, pretty well without a lot of delays.
3: One other question for you, and this is probably right out of left field. How did you get started in, in, in the space beat? Um, was it just something that, that you, you had, a, had an interest in, or um, you know, how, how, how did you just really, really decide that this, is, that this was going to be the beat that you wanted to recover as, as, a, as a reporter?
0: You know, I'm going to age myself here, but um, I'm, I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, which probably answers your question. Okay. But, but I actually, um, my father worked for for um, what became NASA. He worked for Werner von Braun. Uh, wow. Von Braun came to Huntsville back in 1950. My father went to work for him shortly thereafter, and so I was always interested in what my father did for for uh, you know for a job. And I, when I was Seven years old, so I'm I'm, age, I'm dating myself now. He took me out into uh, uh, we lived out on a farm uh, outside of town and showed me the, the the upper body from Sputnik going over, and it was you know I was seven years old it was I was pretty impressionable and it just kind of stuck with me and and you know it, I, I won't say it's the family business I guess the farm is that but <laughs> but um, but the uh, you know I've just always been fascinated with the space program, right from the beginning, because of my father's work and and the the work that all of my friends' fathers did too. That was pretty much the we were a company town back in those days, which was the 50s and 60s. And uh, they built the Saturn Saturn 5, or they they developed the Saturn 5 there, and uh, used to literally shake the town when they tested those big F1 engines. Wow. Yeah, so that's how it just came naturally.
3: One final, my, my, my final question for you, sir, is this. Um, we had two astronauts recently, uh, m- both Mike Barrett and Mike Fink, basically say that this is this is really a, a cool time to be, be an astronaut. Um, how, do you, how do you think the future is going to pan out? Yeah. Are we going to finally just go ahead and get everything together and everything is going to be all bright and rosy? Or are we going to be, you know, are we on a rocky road that we're just going to have to make sure that the car doesn't fall off the cliff at this point?
0: Well, we're, <clears throat> I, think, I think both of those are true. I think it's, we're on a rocky road. I think there's a real danger that if other priorities, and there are plenty of priorities screaming for attention right now, as you well know, they might drown out the, uh, the uh, excitement that, that, that a lot of people like you and, and, and I feel about space. There's, it's, 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 it's not like it was in the, in the 50s and 60s when... You know every every everything was a first I mean they're you know this is we're coming up on the 134th shuttle flight <clears throat> excuse me I can understand why why Barrett and, and Fink said that though because you know they're they're both space station astronauts and and they've uh, you know it's a great time to be a, a you know, an astronaut trained to work on the space station Mike Fink has been up there twice now there's going to be a lot of really interesting things going on on the space station but for other astronauts the, you know I, I asked Bill Gerstenmaier recently, if there would continue to be a need for military pilots, astronauts, the first astronauts were all military test pilots, and mm-hmm. the people who fly the space shuttle are still military test pilots for the most part. <clears throat> They're certainly military pilots. Um, and he said, yes, we're going we're gonna to need those kind of people um, in the future because of their ability to compartmentalize and just the kind of training that they get in operating any kind of high-performance machine. And there's going to be, you know, they're going to be testing new machines. They're going to be testing commercial crew vehicles. They're going to continue to work on the uh, Orion capsule, which we haven't discussed, which is the, um, it, it was the vehicle that was the, the capsule that was going to replace the space shuttle as a government-built human spaceflight vehicle. And it's still on the books. They're still working on it as uh, a deep space capsule you know, to ride on this heavy lifter to go out um, beyond low-Earth orbit. There, You know, there's a lot of test flights coming up, and they're going to need some some pilots to fly them, even though they may not be flying them like they, they do the space shuttle, where, the, you know, it's a hand-on-the-stick kind of thing. So it's it's a very interesting time. I would think it would be very interesting time to be either kind of astronaut, you know, a, a scientist or a, uh, a pilot. Right. And... Uh, of course, you know, there's, you, I know you know about the Chinese curse. Yeah. You live in interesting times, so yeah. <laughs> you have to take that for what it's worth as well. Indeed. It, it,
3: it's just, I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out. Occasionally so I do, I occasionally do uh, talks for school groups and things like that, and I'm just trying to hit on the right words to, to inspire these kids to keep plugging. And uh, you know, especially with the way things are, I'm, the way I'm putting it now is just that we'll get our act together. Don't worry, just keep on studying and so on, and, and, and you're going to get your chance. So uh, that's the way I've been playing it.
0: Um, if I could just say one thing about what you just said, it yes, based on my experience as a kid uh, a long time ago. As long as they keep launching stuff with with. Uh, Either people in them, or that do interesting things in space, like the Hubble telescope, or right. or Juno, or the James Webb telescope, uh, when it finally goes, uh, there's going to be a certain number. There will be a certain number of children who who are fascinated enough to really, you know, study math and and go to engineering school and and, and keep following through. If it if it lapses if it lapses into something kind of moribund, that's that's where the problem's going to come in.
3: Yeah. And then
0: that's what I'm
2: hoping we
3: don't do. So,
2: Yeah, Frank, I've got a question. I've got kind of a, um, I guess, a particular interest in the aviation side of of what your magazine covers. Uh, mm-hmm. I work for the FAA. I'm an electronics technician on NAVAIDs communications. To me, new equipment is 10 years old. A lot of what I work on is 25 and 30 years old. I'm curious what your opinion is in general of the... Uh, you know, I, I see the technical side. I see the equipment side, not necessarily the air traffic control part of the FAA that much. But how healthy do you think the FAA is? Do you think there's dramatic changes coming?
0: You know, I, I, I just know it from the, the NASA not and the talk to, about Next NextGen, uh, which is an ATC program, uh, air traffic control program. I'm probably not really confident. We have, we have people in the magazine who, who cover the FAA very closely and the technical side of the FAA very closely. And maybe you know, maybe we could get one of them on here sometime. Um, I, as far as the NASA side, there's just you know, like I said, it's the stepchild. There's not a lot of, you know, they're they're doing good work, but there's just not that much money for it. And ultimately, money counts for something in government programs, and uh, it's a way to gauge how how committed the government is to it. So you you look at the follow the money and 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 i'm not surprised when you said that you know new equipment is 10 years old that goes all across the government that i'm familiar with and i've I've covered the pentagon as well so you know the faa is is the only game in town but they're they may not be state-of-the-art i would think because they're a government agency
2: i guess my last question is um uh, If you would think of it as a policeman walking a beat, the beat of of Aviation Week is pretty much the world, am I right?
0: That's right. We we cover the the international aerospace um, industry, and it's a fascinating beat. It's it's all over the world. I've I've been to a lot of countries to to visit aerospace facilities and and space facilities. So, yes, that, that is our beat. And we have reporters literally everywhere. We could we have blackberries office blackberries and at any given hour somebody is on it um, filing a story or trying to get somebody to wake up to do something or, or or do something you know it's 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 an international industry
3: other than 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 filing stories in the middle of the night that just <laughs> sounds like an exciting job <laughs> just waking up and just saying hey there's something new i got to go ahead and talk about it <laughs>
0: Well that's a, you know that's the beauty of the internet. You guys there's all you know you can get up at any time and there's there's somebody awake finally.
1: Frank since you've been focused on space um, your entire life and your you know your entire career where do you think NASA should go right now with Charlie Bolden set to prepare for you know meetings on the hill this week about NASA's budget do you think we should go to an asteroid, Mars, where and with what vehicle? Where do you think we should go?
0: Well, I, I, you know, I I, I try not, I, you know, I'm, since I'm covering this stuff and I am a journalist, I try to um, keep my personal opinions out of it, if I can. I can tell you where I think we're going to go, and that that's the space station. I mean, that's that's logical. I also think that you know Mars is where we're going to go eventually, and um, anything between there. I'm, I'm I think I'm probably getting between the space station and Mars. I'm getting into uh, policy issues that I'm probably not qualified to talk about anyway, and and as a journalist, I probably shouldn't.
1: Okay, fair enough. Excellent. Well, Frank, thank you so much. And I'll just uh, direct everyone over to aviationweek.com's website. Uh, We'll put that in the show notes where you can uh, see Frank's stories. He also has an active roster of bloggers uh,
0: supporting the beat as well. Can I just interject something here? You know, mm-hmm. we, we love to have volunteer bloggers. That, that space is available to, to people who are serious about it. And, and if you are if you would like to blog, I mean, you know, we, we, we'll make you a deal you can't refuse. We won't pay you, but you can say whatever you want to um, as long as it's, you know, not objectionable. Um, but this is fun. So, yeah, call me again. I'd love to.
1: Sure. We'd love to have you again.
0: Okay, well, thanks very much, and good luck to you. I've, I've started reading your site, and and uh, and it's great. Thank you. Appreciate it. So keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you for very joining much, us. Frank. Okay, I'll take care now.
1: Okay, good night, sir. thank you. Bye-bye.
3: Thanks
0: a lot. Bye-bye.
3: <laughs> okay. Gina, that was probably the most fun I've had all week. <laughs> Jeez, I'm serious. That, that, I mean it. That that was that was great. I mean my my whoops. Did we lose somebody? No. Okay.
2: No, I'm here. Looks like I dropped uh, Frank off the call.
3: Okay. Gina, I swear that had to be the most fun I had all week. I mean that that includes closing the show and closing up much of the stage production last night. That was I was looking forward to this ever since you said you were gonna get him on. Uh this this was great. I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks.
1: Okay. You're welcome.
3: Shall we do our hellos and goodbyes? Sounds like a plan, so this way we can get Gina to bed and, 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 and resting.
1: Yeah, okay.
3: Do,
2: I, I have a lousy memory. Do we need to kind of do the opening? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I don't know.
2: Do you, do I kind of wanna... like
1: it a little bit more casual than the formal. Okay. Let's go, you know, around the yeah. circle. circle.
3: Let's keep it. Okay. Yeah,
1: let's keep it as is,
3: and then we'll just, we'll we'll do an ending, and then call it a day. Okay.
1: Well, thank you, Frank, so much again for coming on Talking Space and uh, giving us your your definite, storied insight to the world of space and aviation. I'll just want to thank the rest of the panel, Mark Rounderman. Thank you so much for your insightful questions this evening.
3: I'm glad I was here, for sure.
1: Gene, thank you again so much tonight for joining us.
3: Oh, I had fun tonight, Gina. This was a a great great discussion to participate in. Thanks.
1: Okay. And as I said, aviationweek.com will be in the show notes. And enjoy the show whenever you're listening to it.